Big Conversations Little Bar with your hosts Randy Florence and Patrick Evans featuring candid conversations with the Coachella Valley's most interesting and influential people. Pull up a bar stool and enjoy Big Conversations Little Bar. Welcome back to another edition of Big Conversations Little Bar. My name is Patrick Evans and we're coming to you from Little Bar in Palm Desert, California. And I am, of course, with my trusty psychic, no, co-host, Randy Florence. Randy. Please call me Sulu. (laughs) (laughs) And welcome. Glad to be here again with you, Captain Kirk. That is wildly appropriate for our guest today, who is Fred Bronson. And I will talk exclusively about his history with the Star Trek franchise, but he is so much more than that. Uh, Publicist for many, many years at NBC, and of course, still churning out great work for Billboard magazine. For how many years have you been doing that, Fred? That's a good question. Uh, I actually started with Billboard in 1984, so next year will be my 40th year. That is remarkable. I'm hoping there's a pen or a pin or something. This should be like a gold watch. Uh, should be. It feels, be like parade, gonna, but it feels like they're going to keep you. I hope so. Every day I go, I don't know. I, don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way at the TV station, so it's okay. You never know, right? <laughs> And Randy's on, on thin ice here on the podcast. <laughs> I'm on thin ice on most things in my life. I have thin ice in my drink. Uh, we're delighted to have you because there's a lot to discuss. Uh, and I know that, you know, originally this podcast was kind of music-centric. So there are many places we can go, from your work with Dick Clark to your work with Billboard, uh, American Idol. I mean, all of this great stuff that we can tap into. Your time as a model? Uh, you know, I have no memory Jack of Webb. Oh, well, that I did. That's true. <laughs> you did read about me. Yeah, my, my first and last modeling job. Really? It was. It wasn't anything I had a desire to do, but unbeknownst to me, my mother sent my photo wow. to an agency. I'm sure someone said, oh, you should send his picture in. So she did. He looks just like a young Jack Webb. Well, that's what, the, <laughs> that's what someone's discovered and awesome. you know I never thought I did but my dad actually did look like Jack Webb so maybe I did mm-hmm. and yeah they, they didn't have any photos of him as a child Cosmopolitan was doing a story on the life of Jack Webb and he had a baby photo and adult photos so they had to recreate photos from his childhood wow. and that's that was my and you were the stand in for Jack Webb child photos I, I was Jack Webb as a child, and so they, they, they recreated scenes from his childhood. Did you get photo credit, or did, you, did they no, just lie and no, say you were Jack No, my Webb? name does not appear at all. Somewhere in the very, <laughs> it's, it's the May 1954 issue of Cosmopolitan, somewhere in the fine print, it does say, we recreated these photos. But my name, it was okay. I got to find that. We got to find that that's issue. A, that's uh, cutting edge journalism. Let's find somebody who yeah. looks like this guy as a kid right. and we'll deep fake it. And exactly. <laughs> I was the first deep fake. Here's one of the things that excited me, though, is I read a little bit more about you. At 11, you won a lunch with Connie Stevens. I did. Oh, my God. I did. And it was, believe it or not, music related because, so uh, we lived in L.A., the Los Angeles Times was the main paper, but they had an afternoon paper. Times came out in the morning, the LA Mirror. In fact, it was Times Mirror yeah. was the name of the company. And they had a music editor named Roger Beck, whose wife Marilyn Beck is a very famous, was a very famous Hollywood columnist. Yes. Roger was the music editor, and I'm so, uh, uh, 
I did have the lunch when I was 11, but when I was 10, I'm reading his column, and he has a contest. Name the song of the, 1959. Song of the year, male artist, female artist. Basically, there were 10 categories, guitarist, orchestra leader, and you're voting for the who you think is the best of the year. Whoever voted for the highest number of actual winners of the poll won the contest, and the prize was lunch with anyone you wanted that they could get, I guess. <laughs> so, uh, And they said the same thing to Connie. <laughs> right. <laughs> that they could get. Oh, I have a funny story about that, but I'll tell you Ooh. about that. So uh, a few months later, I'm re- uh, two months later, I'm reading the column. Now I am 11 years old. And the winner of our contest is Fred Bronson from Culver City, California. What? So they call. They say, who would you like to have lunch with? And now the truth is, please don't tell Connie. I I'm said, sure she doesn't listen to this podcast. Oh, you never know. Okay, so. Uh, the truth Fred's is, on it, and they dated. And, yeah, and, you know, she'll Google her name. And, uh, <laughs> so uh, I said, Bobby Darren. And they said, uh, all right. And they got back to me. We can't get him. <laughs> Who else? And I said, Connie Stevens. I watched Hawaii and I. Yes. I love 16 Reasons, her song. And they said, uh, we'll get back to you. They said, yeah, we, okay. So they gave us a date. Warner Brothers Commissary in Burbank. We lived in Culver City. My mother drove. I was five. And, uh, sorry, I was 11. <laughs> yeah. Too young to drive. So my mother drove me, and we had lunch in the commissary, and all around us were the stars of 77 Sunset Strip, because they both filmed in adjacent stages on the Warner Brothers lot. Wow. I had a lovely lunch with Connie, and at the end of the lunch, she drove me in her little red sports car <laughs> to the set of Hawaiian Eye, where we took photos on the set of her, she worked in a rec- her character worked in a record store. Yeah. So there I am with my, you know, po- posing. And Connie is in the, doing the same pose. And there we are in the L.A. mirror a couple weeks later. Wow. I love that story. Now, <clears throat> what did she think of having a lunch with an 11-year-old? Was, was well, she, she, she was, she was like, like, like the way you would treat a house guest. She was a fabulous host. You know, she was very engaged. And um, now it's how many years later? So that's 1960. 13 years later... I am the publicist, coincidentally, on the Bobby Darren show. He had a weekly mm-hmm. variety show. And Connie's a guest. So I go up to her and I say, Connie, I know you won't remember this, but when I was 11, we had lunch. I won a contest. And she went, oh, well, that, that's nice. Very cold. And I realized afterward, it's because I said I was 11. And now she, and she's... It made her feel old. Yeah, I get it. Oh, you ate? Yeah. She, yeah. Yes. <clears throat> so just a few years ago, <laughs> I ran into her again at a screening of a movie. And you said when I was 40, we had... <laughs> I, I thought, I learned my lesson. I went up to her and I said, Connie, you won't remember this. But we had lunch once. I won a contest. And she said, oh, that's amazing. How fantastic. By the way, also at that screening was Terry Hughes who was on the cover of the Cosmopolitan magazine with the Jack Webb story. Wow. So I That's went synchronicity. Her. I know. <laughs> I went up to her and I said, you and I have something in common. What? We were both in the May 1954 issue of Cosmopolitan. <laughs> How do you know that? <laughs> so did you ever get, since you were the publicist on the Bobby Darren show, did you ever get to have lunch with Bobby Darren? Oddly enough, no. Um <laughs> And, and, and strangely, I had lunch with all of the actors I worked with over the years. 
except for Bobby. Bobby did not want to do any publicity. Really? He did, our, he did a photo session with our NBC photographers, which, you know, I worked on. And from that point on, and but a few months after the show went off the air, he died. Yeah. And then my thought was, you know what? His health wasn't good. And I think that's why he didn't do any publicity. Yeah, he wasn't t- feeling well. I think yeah, the, yeah the he had the heart condition. But, you know, six months away from dying. Hmm. So at the time, I thought, you know, what a jerk. He won't do any publicity. He has his own show. And why wouldn't you publicize your own show? But then I realized, no, I think it was, he just couldn't. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty debilitating but from, it, it, if, yeah. from what I've read. It was a pretty big deal when he passed also. I, it was. It was I remember young. being on, a, on I mean, a bus and we pulled alongside the bus stop and there were newspapers in the stands, mm. giant headlines, Bobby Darren passed away. Wasn't he 37? I was going to say he was 37. Yeah. But he had a bad heart, and he always knew he was going to die young. He was one of the most versatile entertainers. I mean, Mm. from rock and roll to crooner to to protest song singer. Yes. You know, he did. Yes, songwriter. He wrote Simple Song of Freedom. Yes. Which Tim Harden recorded, and Tim wrote If I Were a Carpenter. So it was like a, yeah. All right. um, I'm going to get to the nerd portion of the program right now, (laughs) because you were just talking about working at NBC. And you won this contest when you were 11. But you, you had a, a very lucky childhood slash youth because you were a fan of the original Star Trek show and you actually got on set. I did. And you were uh, in college at this time. Yes, exactly. So, I mean, charmed life. Connie Stevens, William Shatner. Oh, there's, there's, uh, yeah. You just gave away the punchline of the story, but that's okay. That's okay. I didn't, I didn't get no. <laughs> oh, okay. All right. He doesn't but, do this for a living. But so. you're, but you're right. No, you're I'm right. just setting you up for success. You, okay, <laughs> you are, and thank you. Thank I'm sorry. You. All right, Connie Stevens, DeForest yeah. Kelly. Yes, there we go. So, uh, yes, I was. We'll fix all of this uh, in as, post. Oh, be fantastic! Fine. There's post. Um, I, I, no, I we, but we tell our guests that <laughs> right. It's actually the Saturday evening post, which we have a copy of. So I uh, well, I watched Star Trek from day one, and it was my freshman year of college. Season three, I'm watched, I watched it every week with a, a bunch of friends. And one of them, uh, a girl, I, I say girl because we were in high school. Well, I was in college. She was in high school. Jackie. Uh, one day she said, hey, I went to the set. I said, you what? She said, yeah, anybody could do it. You just call the production office and you can visit. And as I said, he lived a charm life. He met the only girl that liked Star Trek. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, that's, that you. in and of itself is a feat. Okay. Well, Do you have her pee in a bottle and, or anything? And, and, and <laughs> I wish. Now, this got weird. Uh, she, yeah. Uh, and, and she wanted to write for Star Trek, too, much, much like I did. Um, so, I call the, op- the production office. And sure enough, they give me a date. Uh, for, be, come to Paramount, 4 p.m., December 31st, 1968, you can bring a friend. That's crazy. I had a friend who was a huge Star Trek fan, who oddly enough ended up writing for Star Trek as well, like I did. Uh, I said, Mark, uh, your Christmas present is, we're going to the set of Star Trek. Come December 31st, we, I drive over to Paramount, it's 4 p.m. The gentleman who is our host walks us over to the stage and says, it's four o'clock, Stay about a half hour and then go, and he takes off. So you're left unsupervised. We are totally unchaperoned, unsupervised. That's not a good idea. And well, you know, back then, 
it wasn't unusual. Okay. Now, now you would never bring two kids over to a set. You wouldn't put me in there unsupervised. See, so we we were kind of surprised, but so there we are, and no one's bothering us because they see this guy brought us over. They know we're okay, and we're watching them film the scene in Sick Bay. And on that same stage, by the way, was the bridge. Even though they weren't using the bridge that day, we got to see the bridge. Did you sit in the chair? Not them. But I did sit in the chair 20 years later. Actually, on September 8th, 1986, there was a party for the 20th anniversary of Star Trek. Coincidentally, it was on one of the stages where they had the set for the movie they were filming at the time. I sat in the captain's chair at 8.30 p.m. Pacific time, 20 years to the second Man. that Star Trek went on the air. Yeah, you, you have like goosebumps. This is why I invited him on the show, just for this. <laughs> I just this wanted moment. Connie Stevens. You wanted Star Trek. We're good. Thanks, Fred. Oh, hey, I'll, so, I'll see you. So, but you you're, you're to, on the set. Yes. you're left unattended. Yes, you watch the scene, and there was something weird going on that day. Well, first it was New Year's Eve, so people right. want to get out of there. Yeah. It, it was the last episode of the series. And the cast knew that they had been canceled. You I didn't know that. I don't know if they... I definitely didn't know. I don't know if they all knew, but Majel Barrett played Nurse Chapel and was, at that time, dating Gene Roddenberry, later married. And we all knew she was dating him. Someone, one of the ADs says, hey, come on, people, let's, let's get this done. Last show of the season. And Majel walks by me. She doesn't know me. Walks by and under her breath says, huh, Last episode, period. And my heart sinks. Oh. Oh, no. And I knew she would know because she's dating the creator of the show. So, so 4.30 rolls around. We do not leave. No one's bothering us and no one's asking us to leave. That guy isn't there. No one's really kept track of what time we arrived. So, I just say, let's just stay. All right, at, they wrap at 5.30. New Year's Eve, everybody wants to go home. Now we're, wa- we're about to walk out, and there's a little section of the stage that's walled off with a door. Inside we see mirrors and sinks, makeup area. And sure enough, you mentioned DeForest Kelly. DeForest Kelly walks in, uh, you know, Bones McCoy, for those of you who haven't seen Star Trek, and shame on you. He walks into the, this makeup area. Yeah. Damn it, I thought exactly. <laughs> I'm a doctor. And my friend says, let's go say hi. And I said, you know, we've overstayed our welcome. We shouldn't bother him. We really should go. We walk outside and I think, wait a minute. What am I thinking? Of course we should go say hello. I said, come on. We walk back in. Again, no one's watching us. No one's even around. They've all left. And we walk to the the door of this makeup area. And he's leaning over the sink, washing his face. I guess washing the makeup off. And he looks up, and it is not DeForest Kelly. It's William Shatner. And I guess I can say this now. He doesn't have his toupee on. Soap is dripping down his face. And he looks at these two kids in the doorway and says, Would you get out? Would you get out of the makeup room? So we left, but we were totally unscarred. It was an adventure. And I'm still telling the story 60 years later, so... <laughs> that is so cool. Well, so, flash forward. So, you are thrown out of the makeup room by Captain Kirk himself. Can you imagine? Which, <laughs> in and of itself, is what an amazing a story. story. But, you have written not one, not two, but three episodes... Yes. 
of this franchise, yes. starting with the animated series. Yes, so I was the public. You mentioned NBC publicity. I I was the publicist for the animated Star Trek, and I treated it like a primetime show. It's the second coming of this beloved show with all the actors doing their voice roles. So I publicized the heck out of it. Gene Roddenberry doing interviews, but I always wanted to write for Star Trek, and I was a little too young for the original series. I actually wrote a script for a college class, but I didn't know who to get it to, you know. So now I'm working every day with the studio, Filmation, that's producing the show. So I say to the two guys who were running Filmation, you know, I'd like to write an episode. They said, well, submit something. And because I know where we are in the production, there are now only two episodes left to produce that they don't have scripts for. So I turn in, I write a script, I turn it in, they like it, they send it to NBC, and NBC says, no, we, we don't want to do this particular story for kids. It was about a planet where aliens were recreating Earth's World War II hmm. for their amusement. And Kirk and crew... It's a be- little deep for kids. For kids, apparently. It's a Saturday morning show. It's not a Sesame Street episode. Uh, no. Now, now, the show did play to adults as well as to kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But it had to play to kids as well. So I have them beaming down to Hiroshima on August 6, 1945, and they, even though it's a simulation, they're going to get the atomic bomb is going to fall, so they have to get out of there. Anyway, they don't buy it. By the way, I I submitted it under an assumed name because I wasn't allowed to write for NBC shows. Mm. Of course, you were an employee. Yes, so they considered a conflict of interest, but I wasn't going to let that stop me. So now there's one at one slot left. So I write another whole different story called the, the Counterclock Incident. They go into an alternate universe where time flows backward and they become too young to run the ship. And what an awesome idea. But here's, yeah. the, here's the genius of the script <laughs> that, that lives on to this day. Mm. Everybody on board is too young to run the ship except for uh, an admiral who was Robert April who was the first captain of the Enterprise. Who I made up. Who he made up. Right? Just, this is a character he created, and but has since become ensconced in canon in the current TV show that is on the air now, Strange New Worlds. There is... That's got to feel pretty good, Fred. After 48 years, he's in live action. He's live action. There's, there is a Robert April. He was the captain of the Enterprise, and he is entirely based on, on Fred's animated episode because he was an aging admiral he became a young you know youthful young man who saved the day and saved the enterprise so that the rest of the crew could return to their normal timeline that's pretty cool and so did you ever write any payback to the kirk character for the makeup there's a there's a scene in the counterclock industry where kirk yells at everybody get out 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 now i'm making that up but there should have been right i i I really should kill him off at some point we'll know why well they did kill him off it wasn't me that's true fred 
You know, they're still making. You can still write that. I you know, can, you, know, you I should know. submit a script. You know, I never told him because I thought if I'm going to tell him the story, I have to use the word to pay. Yeah, and he doesn't and like that. I didn't want. So I, I could have like, like dropping my age from Connie. I could have told him the story without to pay, but I never did. And you went on to write uh, two live action episodes for the Next Generation, right? Which arguably, I think most people would agree, it was the most successful part of the Star Trek franchise. You know, when oddly enough, and you know this, when Next Generation was going on the air, the fans rebelled. You oh, yeah. cannot do Star Trek without Kirk and Spock. We're never going to accept this. We're never going to like it. Don't even bother. And then it went on the air. And eventually, people fell in love with it. And people grew up with it. It ran I mean, for seven seasons. It uh, Patrick Stewart was consistently voted the sexiest man on television in the 80s. I mean, here's a bald guy. Which I really appreciate. <laughs> uh, no, it really, it, as much as Star Trek is part of popular culture, the next gen is what really kind of people m- more so recognize these days. It's the formative series for m- people of a certain age, right? Yes, that I is mean, correct. if you grew up during that time, maybe you went back and watched the original series later, but you grew up watching. All of these Next shows generation. were in color, Randy. You don't remember them, but uh, they were. <laughs> I'm not sure the original one I know, was. I know oh, you was. loved. My, my, my life was in black and white at uh, that point. My mother's right. Squad 54, where are you? And my, <laughs> my mother, mother the car. The car. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> well, it was on NBC, and NBC was owned by RCA, which manufactured color television. That's so, true. So let me. Were you a comic book fan growing up? Absolutely. I wanted to write for DC Comics. I saw some of that. Thank you. I wrote letters to the editor. They were published all the time. And when I was 14, I my parents took me to New York City for the first time. I had already been writing letters. I was getting published. You know, I'm, I'm like 12, 13 years old. And so I wrote to all the editors and said, I'm going to be in New York City on the, these dates. I would love to come to the office and meet you. And every one of them said... Yes, we'd love to meet you. Come to the office. So <laughs> literally had one day at D.C. where I went from office to office meeting all the editors, including comic legends like Julia Schwartz, Mort Wissinger. And then that was the same year I discovered music in the charts. And a year or two later, I wasn't reading comic books anymore. Wow. So your favorite year in music is 1963. It is. Just before the Beatles. Tell me why. Uh, I'm a real pop guy. I love pop music. And uh, it's the year when I discovered there were charts. First, I discovered there were local charts on my radio station, KRLA. And a few months later, I'm downtown with my mother shopping in a record store. And I find a trade magazine where they have a national top 100. And I think... This is bigger than I thought. <laughs> this goes There's way more this than is 10. Way beyond this the is national. Paper. Oh, my God. So then the following year, I went to work in a record store, and that was it. Music was my life. And charts. And it has been. And as you pointed out, it'll be 40 years that you've been working for Billboard magazine. And uh, you also cover the uh, Eurovision Awards. That's I do. Euro- yeah, Eurovision Song Contest. Uh, you mentioned American Idol. I cover that. So talk about your time at American Idol because you continue to be involved, but w- w- you were a panelist. Uh, well, I, I wasn't a panelist. What I was, uh, they put me on the show four times. Yeah. And I did not sing the locomotion. Because that well, would have canceled. I, Damn it. No, no, that would have canceled the show. 
Uh, I would have loved to have seen Simon watching that. I, yeah, it would be horrible. Uh, <laughs> like, why is Jack Webb singing the locomotive? Why is Jack Webb singing? <laughs> right. Thank you. So, if I have a moment to explain, I went to an event sponsored by the TV Academy in season two. And I meet Nigel Lithgow, the executive producer. And within 30 seconds of meeting him, I say, Nigel, I have an idea. I think he rolled his eyes. And I, I said, uh, the, you do themes, yes. Uh, the theme is the editors of Billboard pick the songs for the kids. And he said, absolutely not. <laughs> because we did that in the UK on Pop Idol. And what happens is... You pick their song, and they go home, it's your fault. Mm. So they have to pick the song. I said, oh, okay. Now the event takes place over two hours, and my mind is racing. What else? What else? What else? Oh, wait a minute. I have a book. The Billboard Book of Number One Hits. After the event, Nigel, I have another idea. Rolls his eyes, and I said, um, the kids sing Billboard Number One songs. He said, that's a great idea, and we'll do it. We're all filled up this year. I promise you we'll do it next year. Two weeks later, I get a phone call. Uh, we're doing number one hits. Maybe you want to come over. And I said, well, <laughs> since you're doing that, I have another idea. <laughs> and I'm on the phone, so I don't know if their eyes rolled or not. I said, why don't you bring the kids to the billboard office, and I will teach them how the charts work, because this is season two, Ruben and Clay, just like Kelly Clarkson, they're going to make the charts. They might as well understand how they work. And they said, great. So they sent a film crew to Billboard and the contestants. And we did a little lecture about the charts. And I answered their questions. And that was on American Idol. Wow. And then they brought me back three times. Once to talk about how important Lennon and McCartney are. Because they were doing the first ever theme of all Lennon McCartney songs and then a couple other times to talk about billboard charts and I know you wrote on this but why do you think American Idol had more folks that were successful past the show than the others because they told you their stories and because it wasn't about the judges mm. a show like The Voice is that, more about the coaches right? That is I, that's such a great insight because the other shows do focus so much on the coaches, and the, the contestants become secondary characters, right. which is not the way you make an American Idol. That's not how it works. Right. And people know American Idols who didn't finish right first. They know the Idols. Some of them know the Idols who came in 10th place. On The Voice, you don't even know the winners, really. I mean, maybe a couple of them, but not, not very much. So Idol has produced, you know... I used to keep track of how many idols have charted. And, you know, there were like at the time, 70 idols had appeared on the Billboard charts in one way or another. So, a lot of stars. Not yeah, just one of them became stars. a congressman or something. Not yet. Well, Clay ran. Clay, he ran. Clay ran. He, he he's, ran. He's never going to run again. He ran twice and did not. Well, like he's back sp- performing now, right? He, is. Yeah. he and Ruben, uh, in fact, they'll be here yes, in November that's in Pot right. Springs. You know, damn it. If Gopher from the Love Boat can become a congressman, anybody can become a congressman. Exactly. Well, once Gopher became one, what's the point of anybody else being one? Well, the problem was when he got to Congress, everybody just handed him their luggage. (laughs) Listen, if if Isaac had run, I I would have been all over that campaign. Two finger guns. so let's go back to 1963, because it was more than just you discovered the charts. Mm. There's a song that you write about 
Yes, my all-time favorite song. Yes. Didn't know it in 1963 it was going to be my all-time favorite. Well, there were a lot of songs between now and then, so... Absolutely. And it remains your favorite. It it absolutely does. And uh, so the song, even people not born that year know it because it was in a movie many years later, sung by Whoopi Goldberg and a bunch of nuns, I Will Follow Him. But in 1963, it was by Little Peggy March who was only 14 years old when she rec- you know, recorded it. When it went to number one, she was 15 years and one month old. That made her the youngest female singer to ever have a number one on the Billboard Hot 100. 60 years later, which it is now, she still holds that record. Wow. Didn't Brenda Lee come close with it? I'm sorry. So you're very good because Brenda Lee, when, uh, when I'm sorry went to number one before I will follow him, Brenda was 15 years and nine months. Nine months, that's right. I knew so there was. Peggy broke that record, but no one, no one has broken it since. Monica why is was, it your favorite song? You know, why do we like Star Trek? Sometimes it's hard to describe. Well, it hits me on an emotional level. Well, <laughs> Randy, you don't get to answer that. Question. But I love this song. <laughs> it, is, it is a great song. It's a great recording yes. and a great song. And then in 1984... I was writing my first book for Billboard, the Billboard book of number one hits. I interviewed Peggy, and we are like family now. So we became friends, and it's, to it's so interesting to me. <laughs> I mean, again, I go back to this. You kind of lived a charm life. So you yeah. win this contest. You're ten years old. You you enter it. You then suddenly you're on the set and having lunch with Connie Stevens, and then you're on the set with, of Star Trek, and you aspire to write for Star Trek, and then you ended up doing that not once but thrice and meeting Gene Roddenberry becoming friends I don't know I can't explain it <laughs> it's it is I, pretty remarkable I, rec- I recognize Peggy that March yeah yes. your favorite song and you, and yes. now you guys are fast friends you like it's interesting how the universe has kind of brought you together with the people you've idolized over over years. and over uh, my second favorite song it's my party by Leslie Gore mm. now not, Les, I got to know Leslie and interviewed her many times ABBA my favorite group Interviewed many times. Don't you stay? Well, uh, with the daughter of Abba's manager. He passed away. So when I go to Stockholm, they host me in their home, yes. So let's go back a little bit. I yeah. mean, at five, your, your mom was, made, was modeling you. What, um, was there something in the family that kind of sparked this creative side of you that moved down that lane? Not really. And by the way, my mom was definitely not a stage mom. No. She never pushed me. Yes, she sent my photo in. I think of the encouragement of some other relatives, which is fine. Uh, Even though I didn't ask for it, I got this great adventure out of it. But no, she never pushed. I wanted to be a writer. I knew that actually when I was five. I knew I wanted Mm -hmm. to write. I don't know how I knew that. Uh, I would start, uh, who knows what I was writing, but I would sit on the playground and write because I wasn't athletic. Your writing career has taken two very divergent paths. I mean, the the writing for Billboard magazine is uh, not just a particular style, but but such a specialized area of writing. And then you can write these these fiction pieces that are very also stylized because you're writing screenplays, which is an art form Mm -hmm. unto itself. I, I agree. Uh, don't know. I can't explain it. Uh, but you, like you threw out a screenplay in your 20s that got produced. Yes, the animated episode. Yeah. Uh, with very few changes, really. Um, how I, did you know how to write a screenplay? 
Well, that's a very good question. I did take a call. I mean, part of it, I think, was just intuitive and from watching television. But as far as the format, I took a class in college uh, when the original series was on and wrote my script for the original series that never got produced because I was 17. Uh, so I learned the format. Uh, but otherwise, I don't, I don't know. I don't know why I'm a writer. Like, I am. But how and why, I don't know. Nobody stopped you yet. No, right. Well, <laughs> but I think you also write about things that inspire you. Sure. I, I love Star Trek. I love music. I love comic books. So, yeah. You know, you've done something else that I think is really fascinating, and I'm guessing there's probably hundreds of thousands of people who you've touched in a way, and they don't even know it. You programmed music to listen to on United Airlines. Yes, Talk about that process. Where did you find that? Uh, you can't believe I've known I Fred for a couple of years now. I didn't know that. I called Connie. We talked for a while. She, uh, I am so glad she keeps up with my career. Uh, the, the United Airlines thing came from her. Just don't mention I was 11 when we had okay. lunch. Okay. Uh, so, yes, my friend Ronnie Schiff. Uh, Ronnie is a woman who's been in the music industry for many years. Ronnie, uh, was that was her job. Uh, she worked for a company that produced all of the music on United Airlines. And she knew my particular taste. And so I did a channel with a dear friend named Brady Benton called European Beat. And it was songs you never heard of that came from Lithuania and Latvia and Spain and France, all over Europe. Of course, I was following the Eurovision Song Contest, so I had a, you know... You had a leg up. up. Yeah. And so... Uh, I pro Brady and I programmed all these songs from Europe, and every it was every two months we'd have a new channel, new program, and then at some point uh, the person doing the Broadway channel left, and she said, "Are you guys interested in doing the Broadway channel?" He said, "Yeah." So Brady was actually a, we had there was no host on European Beat, just music, yeah. but Broadway Channel had a host, and Brady did that, and I wrote the scripts, much like I also wrote the Billboard Radio Countdown. For Billboard, with my good friend Chuck Taylor, who was the host from Billboard, who's sitting York. right beside him. He doesn't well, have a headset, unfortunately. Yes, right. But Chuck I, has flown all the way in from Virginia to just to be just a part for of this episode for the podcast, yes. which I think you know. I'm so honored. It explains our almost national reach. Yeah, we now have two we listeners. We got to the eastern shore of Virginia. That's damned yes. impressive. <laughs> We're not yet to Chincoteague Island, but we're really oh, close. God, really I hope close. So. I hope so. So have you ever listened to yourself on a plane? <laughs> yes. Wow. Because that was my favorite channel. Yeah. I wanted to stand up and go, would you all turn your <laughs> entertainment <laughs> to channel That's 28, me. please? But I never did that. <laughs> this is not your captain speaking. This is Fred <laughs> Bronson. And <clears throat> you had, yeah. Go ahead. Oh, speaking of that, so one day I'm in Barnes & Noble, and they have a little lounge area, and people are reading... And there's a guy reading Billboard, and he's reading my column. Mm. And I'm walking right behind him. I regret to say that I didn't tap him on the shoulder and say, hey, that's my favorite column, too, and see if because my picture's in the column. Yeah. And I wish I had done that. That would have been really cool. He'd have yeah, stories. Yeah. Maybe he's hearing the podcast. You had another gig that I think is really fascinating. You wrote for the American Music Awards. Yes, for over 20 years. So what was that like, and what were the particular challenges for writing it's tough for, for that? For you. Oh, you can't I keep will a tell job, you. can you, Fred? Not at all. <laughs> wrote for that Not at all. <laughs> I just run from thing now to thing. Now he's doing free podcasts for a club soda. <laughs> 
I get a club soda? <laughs> yes. Oh, that's what this is. Not the whole thing. The first one is complimentary. So. Thank you. Okay. We're like heroin dealers. <laughs> I'm, I'm nursing it. Uh, so I went to work at Dick Clark Productions the same year I started with Billboard. Uh, as a freelancer, I could do you know, anything. I wasn't on staff at either place. And I started as a researcher. Well, I started in the radio department. Then they put me as a researcher on an American Bandstand anniversary show. And while I was doing that, one of the producers, Larry Klein, who I adored, was just a fantastic human being. Uh, no one, there's no one in the world like Larry Klein. He's unique. He comes into my office and he says, you better say yes. <laughs> And I said, yes, what am I saying yes to? <laughs> Thank you, bye. He said, uh, you're going to write, D Dick is going to host three hours live of Live Aid on ABC, and you're going to write it. Wow. I said, okay. I already said yes, so yes. But I'm thinking to myself, this is where they're starting me on a three-hour live show? Are they crazy? We all went to Philadelphia, JFK Stadium. I've been on the press box with Dick and camera crew and cue card person. And I'm writing. And some of it I'm writing while we're on the air live. And it's going on the cue cards. And I kept writing. I guess I did okay. And so at one point they said, uh, would you be interested in writing the American Music Awards? I said, well, yeah. So it ended up being a 20-year gig. I wrote it for 20 years. And in the middle of that, they said, oh, well, this is a whole separate story. So in December of 2004, Dick had his stroke. Mm -hmm. And that year, they brought in... Uh, Ryan Seacrest. Uh, no, Ryan the following year. Who was the uh, first? Um, Regis Philbin. Um. By himself. Because uh, it was... we were, um, nobody would work with him. Exactly. Yeah. They uh, were... They were Regis was one of the great talents of our time. Absolutely. And they... That's what I meant. They, I know you did. They were three weeks away from the show, so it was all scrambling. The next year, they brought in Ryan. And just a few days before going to New York, because they would start working on the show in October in L.A., but Christmas Day, they go to New York, and they're there for a week. Just before that, they realized, wait a minute, we have one writer. He's with Dick during the show. Who's going to be with Ryan. Well, I knew Ryan from American Idol and had also written a TV special for him based on American Top 40 radio show. And so he said, Fred, would you go to New York and work with Ryan? I said, yeah. So that year, I just went for the last week of the year and did that. The next year, they actually started me in October writing the whole show. Well, there were two or three writers. So, but, you know. Uh, so for 12 years, I wrote Dick Clark's New Year's Rockin' Eve. What was it like working with Dick? Well, it was a dream because, first of all, he was incredibly supportive of me. Um, just couldn't have treated me better. I'll tell you a story about that in a second. And uh, I loved working with him. So I wrote for his voice. You know, when you're writing a show where he's the host, you got to write like you're Dick Clark. And I somehow managed to do that. You've written a book about Dick Clark. I did, uh, with him on American Bandstand. Yeah. yeah, he came to me once and said, I made a book deal, we're doing a book on American Bandstand, would you write it with me? So what I did was spend a summer interviewing him and wrote the book in his first person. But wow. the, the example I want to give you of how supportive he was is when my first book came out, the number one hits book, he had a whole wall in his office of rock and roll books. 
So I very, you know, happily walked into the office and said, uh, Dick, I wrote a book and I wanted to give you a copy, you know, for your library. He said, oh, thank you. I said, you know, I think it would make a great TV special. He looked at the cover and he said, how fast do you want it to happen? Oh. And I said, uh, fast? And he called the president of the company, because Dick was CEO, and said, make a deal with Fred. We're turning his book into a TV special. And they did. So that's... Now, I'm not saying every idea he went for. I did take him ideas where he said, no, we're not going to... I love you, but no, we're not doing that. <laughs> no. So I, I loved working with him and, and his wife, Carrie. And So what were the challenges for being a writer on a live award show? So, for example... What, now, nor, you know, a live show, we have people who know how to time it. So you end, you know, it's a three-hour show, but you've got to end at three hours because the local news is coming you gotta, on. You've got to end at, a, at 11 o'clock. Yeah. I mean, really, 10.59. It's a must. It's got to squeak in some commercials. Right. Well, some years you run long and some years you, you hardly ever run short. But so, because people will speak, right. acceptance speeches. I've never known an award show to run short. Exactly. <laughs> I, I have been on the local news side of that where I'm waiting to go on, and our newscast will get scrubbed because you guys filled the whole half hour. Exactly. Isn't that awful? <laughs> yeah, way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, no. it's, it's kind of a relief because like, okay. Right, yeah, right. I still get paid. <laughs> so, One way or the other. Uh, so there were years, you know, where, yeah, um, you're right too, but they have a, they know how to, you know, we, for some of the awards, we have short packages and we have long packages. You get to 10.30 and you're running long, you use the short. There's all kinds of tricks you can do. One year, we were running short. Oh. And they realized we were 10 minutes <laughs> short. And you cannot throw to the locals with to fill a 10-minute gap. That's no. not going to happen. And you can't have dead air. Mm -mm. So I got a, a, a call, you know, on the red phone. Uh, <laughs> You've got to make everything else that's coming up longer. <laughs> so I am literally writing 10 minutes ahead. The of winner gonna, of the uh, next. Yeah. Slow down. <laughs> Lots of dots. I'm, I'm adding, I'm adding, and they're racing it to the prompter. I mean, I'm handwriting it because there's no time for anything else. So that was a challenge. Uh, another challenge is, you know, you write for pr the presenters. And normally they see the copy ahead of time. Because if, if they don't want to say something, we're not going to make them say something, you know. So one year, the presenters were, we paired up William Shatner with, um, oh my God, her name's just gone right out of my head because of, it was such a horrible experience. It'll come to me. It's not as good as Sinead O'Connor. No, no. no. <laughs> um, uh, it'll come to me. She's a comedian. Sarah Silverman. Mm. Oh, yeah. Oh dear. Yeah. I want to see the two of them on stage together. I, I don't want to see that. that so that's a terrible pairing. I've I've written Shatner it. would screw that up so bad. No, no, Sarah it wasn't Silverman. Bell. Yes. So it, it I I wrote I wrote something for the two of them. Well, Sarah didn't like it. So it's ten minutes to five. We're on the air live, five p.m. to New York. And I'm in the parking lot with Bill and Sarah trying to get them to agree on what they're going to say. Now, they're not the first thing on the show, but they're coming up. I got to get this in. And so I finally got them to agree. I don't remember what it, I got them to agree to something. We're all good. We go inside. They come on and Sarah does what she wanted to do anyway. It's a live show. Nothing yep. we can do about it. Can't do it. anything about Yeah. Nope. Wow. And well, 
in that case, you simply should have had Shatner do Rocket Man again. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't do anything. It was like, we're on the air live. I don't know. It's, you know I can't do anything. Uh, do you remember Anna Nicole Smith being a presenter on, on the American Music Awards? <laughs> yes. It's kind of legendary because she went out there and it seemed, well, she was out of it before she went out on yeah. stage. Yeah. Now, she added one sentence, but the rest of it was something I wrote, word for word. Her first word was, her first sentence that she ad-libbed was, do you like my body? <laughs> and then she went into the prompter copy. I'm shocked that you didn't write that thing. I know. <laughs> if, if, with second sight, with I, like I, I would have written that. Why but. didn't I? <laughs> so... But she's reading it like she's making it up. Like she's... Because she is out of it. She did read that whole... Everything sounded like she was ad-libbing and was totally out of the mood. Right. But... So that... That... Got... It went viral for its time. It was... Everybody showed that clip. And everybody thinks the whole thing was ad-lib, but it, it was not. This wasn't a writing thing, but, you know, we're on the air live at 5 p.m., and at 30 seconds to five, our opening act, Mariah Carey, is not there. She has not arrived at the Shrine Auditorium in downtown Los Angeles. Oh, dear God. At 10 seconds to five, and we have no plan B, by the way. <laughs> at 10 seconds to five, she runs into the Shrine from the parking lot. As she's running, they are pinning her dress <laughs> while she's in motion. And she makes it, and she's live at 5 o'clock. But hit man, her mark. Hit her song. That's yeah, the moment where yeah. you would not, no one watching at home would have any idea that 10 seconds earlier she's trying to get to the stage. Well, that's the great, the great Spencer Tracy line. Someone asked him, what is, what is the essence of acting? And he said, know your lines and hit your marks. <laughs> so, Exactly. Showing up late. I love yeah, that. Yeah. It was uh, panic. No, there are yeah, no, more stories. Time. Yeah. Oh, more story. I could go on and on. Well, one thing I wanted to get into, we've got just a few more minutes here. Yeah. Um, you stopped writing for NBC in 82? Oh, yes. Yeah. So uh, I always wanted to live in London. That was a, a dream. You know, I'd go for two weeks vacation, but that wasn't enough. And so I had a roommate, and she was getting married, and I said, instead of me move, you moving out with your husband, why don't I move out and move to London for maybe a year? She said, fine. So I, told, I gave my boss four weeks' notice. I said, listen, I'm, I want to live in London, and so I'm going to resign in a month. Most people in that department stayed till they retired. I was in my 30s. And I took off. The day, after I, my, the day after my going away lunch, I said, what have I done? I'm unemployed. I've left my job. Am I crazy? Well, I was going to ask you that because the next year, Cheers came out. So, I, yeah. Then <laughs> I, I worked on BJ and the Bear and Buck Rogers and the Bionic Woman and Bonanza and shows that didn't start with B. Um, I worked on the Hollywood Squares and the Tomorrow Show with Tom Snyder. All right. Yeah. Just, just tell us about Tom Snyder, because well, he's such an enigmatic figure yes. in, in American television. I remember him with the the smoking cigarette, right, and right. I just remember going through the years of the JFK time with him. Every night he was talking about the JFK conspiracy, right? 
Well, I did, I did love working with Tom, but we had our good days and we had our bad days. There were many good days, and it was great. You seem like an even-keeled fellow. I imagine his, the bad days were his. Funny enough, <laughs> they were. Do you want an example? Yes, please. Okay. Oh, absolutely. All right, we have time? Okay. Oh, yeah. So it's early, early in the show's history. You know, we're based in Burbank, and we are going to Nashville to do two shows. One, one weekend, we're going to be at Tennessee State Prison on Saturday, and on Sunday, we're going to be at the brand new Grand Ole Opry. They had just moved from the Rhyme to their yep. new digs. So we're at the Tennessee State Prison. We spend the whole day there. Uh, it's fine. We're doing different stories. But our last story of the day that we're going to do is Tom is going to interview, in his cell, James Earl Ray. Oh, man, I remember that. Yes. And it's a small cell. There's only room for Tom, James Earl Ray, and the camera. That's it. And my friend, this Ted, who was the censor, they didn't call themselves that, broadcast standards. Yes. That's it. That's all there's room for. And moments before the interview, I had hired a local press photographer to be our still photographer and get, you know, all day long shoot stills. They come to me at a few minutes before the James Earl Ray interview. James Earl Ray said he will not do the interview if there's a photographer present or even on the, in anywhere in the prison, send him home. So I say to the photographer, well, look, it, it was the days where you still developed your film. I said, um, you better go, because otherwise they're not going to do the interview. You might as well start developing the film. So he leaves. Now, this is before cell phones. A few minutes later, they come back to me. Oh, James Earl Ray changed his mind. <laughs> I said, uh, you told me to send him home, and I sent him home. And I have no way to reach him quickly. So we're back in Burbank a few days later, and Tom is furious that there wasn't a photographer to shoot photos of him and James Earl Ray. And he really wanted, he said, call his boss and have him fired. Well, they never did. They never called my boss. And, and, and I was with Tom for a few more years. So, and, and I have to say, after the Tomorrow Show went off the air, uh, one day I ran into him at Dalt's, which was a local restaurant in Burbank, and he could, you know, couldn't have been more effusive and, and just happy to see me. But even better, when we did that TV special on Number One Hits, we taped it a week ahead of time, but the last 10 minutes were live because people were voting for their favorite number one songs. Right, then. And we reported the results live. So we're at ABC in Hollywood. Tom is on the next stage doing his local afternoon talk show for ABC. And Frankie Avalon's are one of our hosts of the special. <laughs> and I go over with Frankie Avalon, and he goes on Tom's show. And on the commercial, I hold up my book. I said, hey, Tom, this is my book. We're doing the shows based on my book. He says, give me that. And when they come out of commercial... He holds it up and says, and this whole show we're talking about is based on a book by my good friend. Fred oh, Brown. man. So he couldn't have been nicer yeah. later. That's awesome. Yeah. Think about the stories. <laughs> I mean, from that five-year-old kid to now. I'm very lucky. Like Patrick says, I can't explain it, but... Charmed life. And it's nothing like I planned it. None of it. It just it just unfolded. Yeah, you well, let the universe just take you along. Yeah, that's awesome, Fred. Yeah. That's what happens when you get involved in the Star Trek franchise because it is a documentary of the future. I waited too long. 
No, no. No, I there's can still only, get involved. There's, there's only, still hope. What? Are there, there's over 800 episodes. Yes. So if you start now, I, I think you have to watch five a day. And, uh, I'll give get, it a you'll shot. You'll get there. I got to go back and read the article about Connie Stevens, though. That's my next step. <laughs> Fred, I want to thank you so much. I've been oh. talking to you about doing this, and, and you travel a lot. You're still... Uh, very actively writing for Billboard, and you're going to be, you're headed off to Sweden here. Yes. So I'm covering the Polar Music Prize in Sweden. Uh, yeah, I, I, but I'm really happy to do this, Patrick. Very quickly, Randy, tell us the thank Polar. You. Thank you. The Polar. Ah, yes, prize Polar is. Music Prize. So it's like a Nobel Prize for music, but not an actual Nobel Prize. And it was founded and funded by Stig Anderson, who was the manager of ABBA. Yep. And the first one was 1992. It went to Paul McCartney and the Baltic states, who were just free of the Soviet Union. And it's a cash prize. It's presented by the King of Sweden. There's a royal ceremony and a royal banquet. And over the years, it's gone to B.B. King, Joni Mitchell, Paul Simon, Peter Gabriel, Led Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, and they're all there. You have to accept or you don't get it in person. And I've been to 21 of them now. Wow. So... Uh, I cover it for Billboard, and it's just great fun. And your book was just featured in <laughs> yes, The so Last of Us. Yeah, so there I am watching The Last of Us, episode one. And for people who saw that episode, Ellie, the young girl, goes into her room at the near the end of the episode, picks up a book, and suddenly I'm looking at my book <laughs> on TV, and it's a plot point, and I, I didn't know about it. So it was a total shock. And, and the checks are rolling in off of that. You now. know, I'm waiting for that. <laughs> Look, the thing about Fred, and, and this is what I, I'm, you know, I'm honored to call him Fred, but I continue you. to, you know, you see things like that, uh, but you've left this kind of indelible mark, quite honestly. I mean, when you watch the Star Trek franchise, you see Captain April, who's now an admiral. Uh, there have been many references to your other episode, the game. Umox in uh, Menage a Troy. Oh, that. Which you can explain, Umox. Uh, <laughs> it's, it's an alien uh, sexual thing for the Ferengi. If you rub their earlobes, it turns them on. Yeah. Basically, and and Fred that. invented that. Yeah. So, no, but like, <laughs> still doing these it? things live they, they, on. They've used it in many other. <laughs> I meant you. Oh no, no me. That's, I had to give it up. Where do you? Where do you? <laughs> had to give it up. <laughs> Fred, we could do hours. I mean, I, I, we, we're very lucky on this podcast. We've had lots of terrific guests, and, and I think we say this to virtually every guest. <laughs> we want you back. Can't wait you, for you to come back. I would love to come back. And thank you, and Patrick, thank you for being a friend. Randy, it's great to meet oh, you. Great to meet you, too. Thank, thank you. you. Now, I've geeked out over this whole thing, even the Star Trek stuff. Now, it's been great? a Well, I'll tell you something. So, Fred and I would get together for lunch, and we need to do that more often. And my wife would always text me, what are you doing today? I'm like, well, I'm having my nerd lunch, because Fred and I are going to mm. talk about But then, Fred sent me a list of top pop Lithuanian songs because of his intimate knowledge of the Eurovision Song Contest and then all of a sudden my wife's like well, some of your friends are really legitimate like, yeah, yeah they are yes they are was number one big bad Leroy Brown uh, uh, in, in the origin, original Lithuanian it is amazing <laughs> 
It's a whole different story, though. His name is not Leroy Brown. It's Vitas Brown. That's just, <laughs> no one's going to get that joke except my wife. <laughs> Fred, thank you so much for being here with us today. This has been awesome, and you're right. We'll definitely get him back. I'd like to have right. you back next week, too. Pat. I'm oh. thinking about it. I'm thinking yeah. about it. That'd be uh, great. We want to thank John McMullen, who produces, and does, he does the website. He's the jack-of-all-trades that makes this all work behind the scenes. And Randy, thank you so much. It was sort of your idea to do a podcast, so I blame you. I, I take full blame. Cards and letters to Randy Florence. Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening to Big Conversations Little Bar. Join Randy and Patrick next time as we keep the conversation going right here on Big Conversations Little Bar. Little Bar.